0: Theological liberalism. Um, before we begin, let's just briefly recap. I thought Ryan's analogy last week of church history being like a tree was really, really helpful. I've never thought of it that way. But so if you think of uh, the the roots of the church, uh, or, or as the roots of a tree, it grows into a trunk, and then at, at various points throughout history, it splits into branches, and we get. East and West, Western Christianity, and from within Western Christianity, we get what's called the Protestant Reformation, and then from that little branch, we get um, uh, branches and smaller trunks of denominations. But, but, all centered around the gospel. Hopefully, where we're live, thriving branches with fruit on them. We're still connected to the root. Uh, if not, uh, we're cut off from from the branch. So on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> Christ established his church. Church continued, thrived, grew, and then around the Middle Ages uh, in the West, we we had the rise of the universities, and that gave way to um, immense amounts of wide-ranging thought and study. And so, combine this with a with a growing a growing sense of hey, we growing sense of uh, textual studies. And a desire to understand classical worlds, the Protestant Reformation happens, and when the church was freed from um, at that time Roman tyranny, um, the church and other folks were more free to to think and to spread their philosophical wings. Right? They don't have the pope telling them what to do, and in a sense, that's really good. But that also bred some other. Uh, too much, too much freedom, if you will, philosophically. And this gave birth to what was commonly called the Enlightenment and Modernism, or what's often called as Liberalism. And we're going to be talking about Liberalism and Theological Liberalism. Now, let's just be clear. The Liberalism that we're talking about today, or, or, or in this lecture, is not the... Like, Political, progressive Liberalism that we hear in the media So we we hear liberals thrown out We we typically think of um, Political progressives That's not what we're talking about Um, Liberalism, as we're going to define it Is a philosophy that seeks to be Liberated, freed From external authorities Whether it be political or religious Liberalism defines freedom True human freedom As autonomous, self-rule um as opposed to even another distinction, classical liberalism, which sought to be freed from vice or even i don't think anybody's coined this phrase, but even New Testament liberalism, which is to be free from sin liberal just means like to be free I mean at, at its root, and so the ancients believed. Uh, we need to be free from all vice. The New Testament says, and the Old Testament, you need to be free from sin. Uh, This liberalism from like the 17th century to the 19th century, so um, 1600s to the 1800s, what we're going to talk about today, said you need to be free from uh, authority figures, religious, political, because you can rule yourself. So that's what we're talking about. Here today, <clears throat> now, um, this lecture is going to be heavy on ideas and uh, really thick with jargon. So I'm going to do my very best to do this quickly as I can and to define as many terms as I can. So strap up your strap on your seatbelt. So the rise of theological liberalism is going to be our first step in this. The, the second step will be, how, how did liberalism affect the church? And then thirdly, what were some various responses to this liberalism, um, which said uh, the human rules himself and not external authorities? So from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is a great little, little um, online resource – um, we have what's called the Enlightenment, and, and you can see on your on your handout uh, where it says the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was uh, a reaction to the rise and successes of 16th and 17th centuries uh, modern science. So the spectacular achievements of, of John Newton and uh, in particular, it engendered widespread confidence and optimism about the, human, the power of human reason and the control of nature and to improve human life. So there's these scientific advancements, um, specifically by, by Christians. And uh, this gave, wise to, uh, uh, gave way to wider thought that, oh, humans can achieve a lot on their own. And in some circles, humans can achieve a lot on their own without religion because humans have, have in themselves what it takes. So, the Enlightenment ultimately was a movement that, in short, uh, to varying degrees throughout Europe and even in America, said, You can think for yourself, don't let others think for you. More or less. It's, it, it, that's a big, broad picture. It's, it's not as nuanced as it, as it really was. And in a sense, we can kind of agree with that. It's like we value personal knowledge. Like, that's why we all have individual Bibles in our hands, because we want you to read the Bible. And God to speak to you. But yet, it's not only that. You need others and other external authorities, such as the Bible, such as God, to tell you what what to do. And the Enlightenment uh, sought to, to, to relocate, ultimately, authority from religious, political figures over you to the human self. One of the leading figures in this Enlightenment period was a guy named Emmanuel Kant. He's the most influential philosopher of his day, whose ideas are still being worked through, even, even to this day. Um, he argued that human understanding is the source of the laws of nature that structure all our experience. So he argued that the, the, the human understanding is the source of the laws of nature. So, so there's a subtle shift there. Like, we understand the laws of nature, like mathematics and physics and Chemistry and so forth. Um, But our understanding isn't the source of them. We we would say, as Christians, God is the source of them. And he said that human reason gives itself the moral law, which is the basis for our belief in God, freedom, and and morality. And therefore, scientific knowledge, morality, and religious belief are mutually consistent. Because they all rest on the same foundation of human autonomy. Autonomy just means self-rule. Um... Autonomy comes from two Greek words, auto, like auto, (laughs) which means itself or like by itself, and nomos, which is which means law. So autonomy is like a self law. So um, two big two big themes in this in this um, Enlightenment were rationalism and and empiricism. Um, Really brief. Rationalism says all true knowledge, all true knowledge. Is accessible only through reason. The only way to know something truly is to rationalize it with the rules of logic or even natural sciences, mathematics, physics, etc. Empiricism says, uh, ah, maybe, but all true knowledge, rather, is accessible through experience. You have to experience knowledge in order for you to truly know it. And, and right there we can kind of say, well. Okay, like, is it, like, empiricism, uh, uh, well, let's just say, maybe this is over, uh, oversimplifying, it, but like, perhaps rationalism might say, okay, I can logically understand how to change the oil in my pickup when I, when I read the, the manual and follow these steps. But empiricism would say, oh, uh, well, you don't truly know it until you actually get up underneath the trunk and you use that 14 millimeter socket, to pull it out. During the oil, etc., and so forth. And we can kind of say, okay, okay. But then Immanuel Kant, this philosopher of, of the Enlightenment, um, had an alternative. He, he, he said, all true knowledge is, accept, is accessible when the data of the world, when the things around us, like you, you see a lamp, or you see a, a carpet, or a laptop, or other human beings. Those are data. All true knowledge is accessible when data of the world... Um, or we on the but when data of the world through experience, through your experience, is organized through fundamental structures of our mind. He says that all human beings intuitively, when they're born, understand things like time, past, present, future, space, um, existence, like this exists, and, you know, it's there, causality, which is, just means cause and effect, this happens, and then this happens as a result. He said, that's intuitive to us. And we take in the data of the world and organize this through these preset structures. And so he'll say, God cannot be known through reason or experience alone, much like the eye cannot hear and the ear cannot see. So so if it's a little foggy for you about what what he's meaning, uh, that's okay, because it's still a little foggy for me. Have you heard of the mantra? If there's a mist in the pew, there's a fog. In, oh, sorry. If there's a mist in the pulpit, there's a fog in the pew. Have you heard of that? It's like basically like if somebody's up here teaching and it's a little misty in his mind as the way he's talking about, it's going to be really foggy for those whom he's teaching. So that's probably what's ha- that is what's happening probably right now. Okay. <laughs> but two big things in the Enlightenment. It prioritizes reason over um, traditional faiths. And um, Experience Over traditional faiths as well So reason and experience Human autonomy is grounded Within man it said You are your own law More or less More or less It also prioritized the goodness Of man Philosophers of the day thought that man Was innately moral And we could say As Christians Um yeah, non Christians and Christians alike know the difference between right and wrong. God has put that in them. It's true, but but they would go so they would go even a step further to say that man is um, innately good and uh, capable of infinitely progressive um, morality on his own, apart from external um, religion, especially the church at the time. More or less. A lot more to say about that. But I'm just kind of giving you a fly-by overview of, like, of what's happening with the Enlightenment. The so these philosophical shifts gave way um, to specific disciplines related to ancient texts. So at this time, you're dealing with philosophers who are um, believing that uh, basically man is his own god, but also who are interested in ancient worlds, in ancient texts. And so they developed certain disciplines that cater to these philosophical shifts, which a lot of them are really helpful, and I'll explain why, but the undergirding philosophy is is the problem. And we call this, these disciplines, higher criticism. You can see, so uh, one thing to say about your notes, your notes are in order. However, within each little section, like the rise of theological liberalism, the effect, and the uh, responses, uh, I, I've, I've added a couple of things That are not on the on outline And I'll make those clear whenever I get there But higher criticism said, asks the questions Who wrote the Bible? Or who wrote an ancient text? Not just limited to the Bible Who wrote an ancient text? When did they wear it? When did they write it? Where did they write it? How did they write it? And why did they write it? So good questions right? I, I, I think so so these specific tasks of higher criticism are not simple in themselves, but the undergirding philosophy that man can um, uh, basically govern his own life, choose his own destiny, and seek through his own reason alone or experience alone truth—that is where we get run into some problems. So this higher criticism by these philosophers um, and s- scholars distinguish between the Jesus of history and the Jesus. Of faith, So one of them, Adolf von Harnack, uh, on the Jesus of faith, he, he viewed, he's a German theologian and philosopher, he viewed the development of Christian theology as the replacement of the teachings of Jesus for the teachings about Jesus. So he says, okay, Jesus lived in this time frame. Here's what the historical Jesus was all about. Now, the church in our day... Uh, Has really gone astray And we're just um, teaching about Jesus And straying from the teachings of Jesus And even other Even modern Modern Unfortunately theologians and professors today Would teach something similar That there's a big distinction between Who Jesus was and who we And who Christians believe them to be today They they would say that We are um, misrepresenting the historical Jesus By trusting in him as the Divine messiah for example. Um, in this time also Jesus of history, like there's a, uh, there was a big quest for the historical Jesus. Let's get to the bottom of who this man was. It's an investigation of not who Jesus is as a divine, as the divine Son of God, but who Jesus is as a man. Let's get to the bottom of who, who he is. And that has its place, but combined with um, a, a man-centered philosophy, eventually, a, you call it a religion. It gets it gets problematic. So a guy named Albert Schweitzer uh, concluded that the quest, this quest had looked for a man of the nineteenth century and instead of and instead uh, uh, and instead of offending Jesus had found its own image. Oh I, I, I typed that wrong. Anyways this guy named Albert Schweitzer said that those who were looking for the historical Jesus at that time were really just looking for a Jesus made in their own 19th century image. And they couldn't find the historical Jesus because they were looking for a 19th century um, person. Uh, higher critical scholars um, uh, did lots of good work with, with the text of, of Scripture and even text in general. And it gave birth to um, several different kinds of criticism. And criticism here doesn't refer to uh, questioning the, the the authority necessarily or the, the essence of a text. It just means... Um, critically investigating to find certain origins. So we've got what five different criticisms. One, we have textual criticism, commonly called lower criticism, because it seeks to seeks to figure out uh, an original. here's a big word, autograph. Not like an autograph. Autograph refers to like uh, the, the 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 very first copy or the very first writing an author made. So. What did Paul, what were Paul's specific words down to the indefinite and definite articles in the book of Romans? Let's find that out. Historical criticism seeks to understand the original date and the author of a book. Okay, so like the book of Hebrews, who's the author? Not so sure. Tradition says it's about with the apostle Paul, but through the discipline of historical criticism may or may not be Apostle Paul, because all we're really working on, working with is the text itself, the language itself, and various traditions that, that say yea or "nay." Source criticism seeks to determine what written sources an author might have drawn from. Okay, so like we're in the Gospel of Mark. It's commonly believed that the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John, more to varying degrees, drew from Mark's Gospel, which they say was written earliest. Okay, and they have reasons to believe that um, source criticism, form criticism, sought to and seeks to determine any unwritten or pre-oral traditions in the written text. This one's tricky because, like, you're looking at, say, like the Book of Psalms, and you're trying to figure out what pre-written liturgical traditions the Israelites had that were not written before. Be a little tricky. Uh, redaction criticism seeks to understand what changes, if any, an author makes to its sources once the sources are turned. So, redaction criticism says, "Okay, Gospel of Luke relied on um, the Gospel of Mark, but what changes did Luke make to Mark's gospel to write his own gospel?" So, as you can kind of see and, and like get the sense that i as I'm presenting it, this can be a really skeptical endeavor, but combine this not-so-firm ground with the idea that man, through his reason alone, can come to knowledge, then you can see how um, scholars would would be really firm in their approach to these answers, thinking that, well, we know it because of our reason alone. In short, Enlightenment, Enlightenment, modernism, liberalism at this time said... uh, Free yourself from any external authorities. Religious, political, center your authority in the human being and in his reason and experience. Manifested itself in a lot of different ways. Now, this made its way into the church, needless to say. And here are some effects. As I've already said, number two, it relocates the authority of God in the scriptures to the autonomous human. Man, more or less, can control his own destiny more or less. Um, it downplayed and downplays still to this day because we're still feeling the effects of it, the virgin birth. So if, if, if reason alone, rationality and logic are uh, the the supreme rules of the universe, as we understand rationalism and logic, then the virgin birth makes no sense. Jesus is not divine. Jesus could not have uh, risen bodily from the grave. Jesus was not sinless because he's a man. He's not perfect. Which is a theological statement, and uh, uh, the historical uh, reliability of Adam and Eve, were, is, is at best uh, a good story, and much more? Um, these sound like arguments that we're still kind of having today with with non-Christians. Um, now we have to be this, we have to, we have to make a, a, a distinction between these kinds of issues in the early church and what we are facing here in the. Uh, 17th and 18th century. So the arguments about, the, about the, divinity, the the divinity of Christ and the virgin birth were, were, were taken place in an assumed Christian context where there are Christians who are um, arguing. Now some were anathematized, kicked out of the church for their heretical beliefs, but still they were assuming a God rules the universe who controls all things. Now we're dealing with an argument that says, um, if there is a God, so what? Man controls his own destiny. I'm watering it down and, and smoothing over it in, in, in broad strokes, but that's kind of where we're at. And even we're still kind of, still kind of uh, in this in this era right now. Um, but it also emphasized ethics at the expense of doctrine. So um, a common view. Uh, that arose in the uh, 18th, 19th centuries was that Jesus is just a moral exemplar. He's a great moral example and not the divine Son of God who's come to save us from death. Um, and one, uh, one guy named Richard Niebuhr in 1937, uh, a prominent Christian ethicist and theologian of the day, he, 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 he responded very, really, uh, really well. He said, quote, A God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom Without judgment Through the ministrations of a Christ Without a cross That was pretty much the, me- the, the message In his words uh, Critiquing those uh, who sought such views um, if I, uh, We'll come back to that Now What are some responses to this Liberalism Being free from external authority And relocating authority to the, to the Mind and heart of man There's a few some more, some more liberal than others, and I'm, I'm gonna present them in, in gradations of, of liberalism to uh, uh, orthodoxy, if that makes sense. So the first guy, and I don't think I put it in your, in your, in your outline, is G.H.F. Hegel. You can just put Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. 1770 to 1831. Hegel, Christian Christian philosopher. But he asserted that reason itself is reality. And he says what, what is rational exists, and what exists is rational. So he, he sought to try and um, assimilate this liberal philosophy with the, the Christian faith. Um, and he said that uh, Christianity is the absolute religion because it complicates the apex of man's relationship with God through the incarnation, though it doesn't necessarily deny other religions. Little, little off there. But he's trying to rationalize Christianity through the lens of um, Enlightenment philosophy. Next up, in kind of the same era, born just two years before, is a guy named Friedrich Schleiermacher. Schleiermacher is a hard word to just spell it the best you can. Friedrich Schleiermacher in Germany as well. 1768 to 1834. Now, he refused to base religion purely on reason. But rather attempted to show his contemporary non-believing rationalists, so he's speaking to non-believing rationalists, that religion plays a crucial role for humanity. So he's looking at his colleagues in, uh, where he's teaching, who are not Christians, saying, hey, religion is a huge part of what it means to be a human. And in his work, The Christian Faith, he argued that true religion is based on get food. Say that with me. Get food. Say it. Get food. I don't know German, but I, I think I, was, I spent like five minutes trying to pronounce it. I even looked up Google Translate to pronounce it for me. And yeah. Essentially, uh, true religion, he says, is based on feeling. But it's a kind of a feeling that it has an acute awareness of your dependence on God. He says true religion, true piety is um, having a, a deep awareness of your dependence on God. So it's not based on rationalism. And it's not based on necessarily experience. But even then, it's, it's still relocating authority slightly to the, to, the, to, the, to the mind, heart of man, rather than like an external authority, let's say, like the scriptures. But what was interesting is that at a time where, where religion was just on the decline, um, and at a time when many believed religion to be a matter of the past, People flocked to hear his preaching and were saved. God is working through imperfect people still. Now, a few years after that, we we turn to to a Danish philosopher, Christian philosopher, who's responding to this liberalism. Søren Kierkegaard from 1813 to 1855. He's a Danish Christian Christian philosopher so he said that reason, rationalism alone cannot penetrate ultimate truths, but faith can. Reason alone, you can't understand truth. You cannot understand God purely through reason, but faith can. And this is really similar to St. Augustine of Hippo in Africa in uh, the fourth century. Uh, where he he wrote often throughout his writings um, a quotation of, of what his Latin Bible would have said is Isaiah 7-9. He says, Unless you believe, you will never understand. And in his magisterial, De Trinitati, on the Trinity, he wrote, If the Trinity is difficult for you to understand, then you must purify your mind through faith by abstaining more and more from sin by doing good and by praying with sighs of holy desire, that God will help you make progress And understanding and loving. So for Augustine and Kierkegaard, to truly understand is to start with faith. And like um, I'm no we, uh, I'm no expert in this, time, in this time frame, but but I but I know just a little bit about Kierkegaard. That this is just like a, like a breath of fresh air for those truly believing of today. It's like okay, yes. Faith is central to understanding what truth is. So, for Kierkegaard, Christianity was not simply the place of honor among the religions, like Hegel, like all these other religions, but Christianity is the best one. And it wasn't merely the feeling or the deep awareness of Schleiermacher, but rather Christianity is a matter of faith. And of faith in the God whose revelation comes to us in the scriptures and in Jesus Christ. So, these liberal ideas that these Germans and uh, Danish theologians were, were, and even French, we didn't talk about them, and and other countries in Europe were um, were wrangling with, made its way to the States at 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 the nation's inception and continued through the churches and seminaries, and there was a big response. And we are today in debt to American theologians and Churchmen responding to this kind of liberalism that sought to free itself from religious and political authorities. One of the chief most is B.B. Warfield in 1851 to 1921. He was born in Lexington, Kentucky. He studied at Princeton, and Princeton was still um, a, a hub for reformed orthodoxy. Now, not so. Warfield responded to theological liberalism by appealing to and expanding upon the ultimate authority for the Christian. So he saw he got to he got to the matter and the root of authority in a heartbeat. He said the scriptures themselves claim to be true and from God, and Jesus and the apostles understood the scriptures to be true and from God. He wrote, "quote We believe this doctrine of plenary inspiration. Plenary means full. The doctrine of plenary inspiration of the scriptures." Primarily, we believe this primarily because it is a doctrine which Christ and his apostles believed and which they have taught us. In short, the Bible testifies to its own inspiration and its authority, and we stand on that. That's our starting point. We go from there. Breath of fresh air for, for Christians uh, in, in America. Um, another major figure at, the, at a similar time, just born 30 years after, J. Gresham Mason. Presbyterian, Mr. House. Born in Baltimore, Maryland, and he studied at John Hopkins University and Princeton. Back when Princeton was still uh, a hub for Reformed Orthodoxy. Now, not so much. He served in World War I as a YMC worker, YMCA worker, and became a seminary professor at Princeton. And in 1929, he left Princeton because of its liberal leanings, say the least. And he founded the famous Westminster Theological Seminary fantastic seminary even uh, still today for evangelicalism. And in 1936, he founded the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, what's interesting is that he studied in in, uh, in 1905 under the liberal theologian in in Germany, Wilhelm Hermann. I'll bring him up in in just a second. He, like Warfield, responded to liberalism um, in a few different ways, but he's most known for his book, Christianity and Liberalism, where he argued that Modern theological liberalism is not only uh, a different religion from Christianity, but belongs in a totally different class of religion. So he's saying that this liberalism is not just a a philosophy, but it's another religion that people submit their lives to, and we need to view it as such. So he's he's a little bit more harsh um, than some of his predecessors regarding theological liberalism. Mason and, and Warfield's influence reached far and wide in the States, perhaps even saving evangelical orthodoxy in America from liberal, uh, liberalism. Because Warfield and Mason and others alike in his in his time were not just philosophers, theologians, but they were churchmen, churchmen who preached and counseled and ministered and saw how this was this liberalism was just wreaking the faith and lives of, 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 of the American church. Now, let's shift back over to the two Europe for just a second. Let's go to Switzerland. Uh, and we go to a guy named Karl Barth. He was the son of Calvinist ministers. Uh, he was born in, in Switzerland in 1886. He studied under Adolf von Harnack, liberal German theologian, and Wilhelm Hermann, this German liberal theologian that J. Gresham Machen studied under. Now, like Machen... He departed from Hermann's liberalism. He said that's not in accordance with Orthodox Christianity. It's not in accordance with the Gospel, with the Scriptures. And so from there he went to study at a university in Münster. And then he moved uh, to another university, the University of Bonn, where in 1935 he was kicked out because he refused to bend the knee to Hitler. And so he moved on. He's he's known for his massive four-volume church dogmatics, which, if you've seen it, it's, it's it's four volumes technically, but it's in 14 separate big books. It spans a whole bookshelf. Um, Mr. House covets me because I always make I always rub it in his face that I I have the entire set and I paid like seven years ago. I only paid 150 dollars for it. Where you can you can the cheapest you can probably get it is like 400 or 500. So look at him right now. He's just he's just so he just. <laughs> Thou shalt not covet, Mr. House. Anyways, um, academically born in a higher world, he wrote and preached to the Orthodox, even though some liberal uh, 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 tendencies showed up in his views of Scripture. I'm going to briefly walk you through some of those, and then I'll make my point. So he believed the Spirit to be inspired, but not the Word of God. He believed that the Word of God was Jesus Christ and that the Scriptures testified faithfully to the Word of God. He viewed that some of the material in the Bible was historically unreliable. Not all of it, but some of it. Um, he, He viewed the Bible as authoritative only to the extent that its theological content bears faithful witness to the Word of God. Um, and that the Spirit not only Inspired the text of the Bible But that he continually inspires Its meaning into the hearts and minds And practice of Christians So lots of things there yeah, That we would disagree with But I want to hide the fact that Mation Who we would more align with Maybe not regarding Church polity <laughs> And paedobaptism, baptism But uh, What is the faith? What is Orthodox Christianity? And Bart. From liberalism because they saw it Not in step with the gospel And so God is working Through Imperfect people Bart was a breath of fresh air to the orthodox Christians In Switzerland Germany all around that area because they're just just, The air that they breathe Is just liberal theology And he was a breath of fresh air for, For those truly longing for Something deeper And likewise Machen as well Um, I'm going to try to land this plane. So we get to uh, the early to mid-20th century. We've got Mason and B.B. Warfield and others, and they're commonly called, especially Mason, the um, fundamentalists because they're returning to the fundamentals of Christianity. As the years roll on, we have a distinction between evangelicals and fundamentalists. And both of these terms, even today, are still kind of nebulous. They're still used in different ways depending upon which pockets of Christianity you're in or where you're at in America or Europe. One historian says evangelicalism today includes Christians who believe the following the Bible is the, the final authority. Um, God's saving work was actually historical and spiritual. Salvation is based on the redemptive work of Christ. Evangelism and missions are, are huge priorities. And the necessity of a spiritually transformed life. You believe that? Uh, George Marston, American historian, says you're an evangelical. But a fundamentalist isn't evangelical. He says, who is? Angry about something. <laughs> 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 so we have evangelicals like, like us. And what makes you a fundamentalist is if you're angry about something, and you're constantly angry about something, and you're constantly looking for a fight. You're constantly seeking to fight the liberals, as we've been defining liberalism. Out of this, out of these streams, we get um, a variety of different folks. Now, in the evangelical stream, we get guys like Billy Graham and Harold Monkiga and even a guy named Bill Piper, whose father was. John Piper and John Piper is commonly called a neo-evangelical, neo-Calvinist, and we're kind of still in this evangelical fundamentalist, modern, but even now postmodern era. Whereas modernism said, um, "Oh well, wow. modernism, modernism didn't deny that truth exists, but that you could get to ultimate truth through reason alone." Postmodernism says. You, as the individual, can create ultimate truth. And that's kind of where we're at right now. And it's really messy, and it infiltrates all of our minds in, 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 in a variety of different ways. Um, through social media, through news, we're, we're really influenced by the things around us. Um, and I think that's why it's crucial to be in a good gospel-preaching church that not only um, prioritizes Orthopraxy, like right practice, like faithful practice, and not hypocrisy, but also deep doctrine. Because I hope, if anything, this little lecture has shown that ideas matter, like theology and what you believe about the divinity of the Son of God, or um, I mean, or about like the Trinity and other theologies matters, and it will play out in your practical life one way or or another. So. That's that's all that I really wanted to say right there. Um, yeah, that's really a flyby. This lecture should have been really like a whole summer seminar, but um, yeah. think anything else? Just just an exhortation to us all. Like um, we we often have a dichotomy between doctrine and practice. Like we, it's like we want a Christianity that's really practical, often at the expense of doctrine. And so what what happens is, is your practice, your Christian practice is influenced by other doctrines, other philosophies, other teachings that are not necessarily biblical. But if if our practice is rooted in a deep, robust intellectual, cognitive faith understanding, then theoretically, by the Holy Spirit's power, right practice will come and will stray away from hypocrisy and will be a, a, a sweet and pleasant aroma to those around us, believing and non-believing alike. So, yeah, liberalism in the uh, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries was sought freedom from external authorities and relocated authority to the inward man and reason and experience, and that was at odds with Orthodox Christianity, which said that the Holy Scriptures, God himself is the authority and tells us what to do and how to believe and how to act. So, um, let me pray for us, and then uh, we can discuss dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've given us the Bible. And thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit that continually keeps us reading the Bible and believing the Bible. Help us, Lord, through our faith in the Son of God, through our faith in the Gospel, to come to true understanding. We don't have to explain it all the way with rationality. As... as, as good a gift as reason and logic is that you've given us. You are higher than that. Your logic far transcends our logic, and we love you for that, and we trust in you, and we feel safe because of that. You know it all, and we don't, and we need you. And you love that we need you, and you love to give us good gifts to meet us in our needs. So, do so today, especially now, um, this day, this Lord's Day in the service in Jesus name. Amen.